I would ask them tonight as you know they're brushing their teeth to ask themselves a question. And that question would be, to what extent do my beliefs about music and music education, to what extent have those beliefs aligned with the basic tenets of white supremacy and the basic tenets of patriarchy? Now, if that person answering the question is a brush of the teeth, say, to no extent at all, my beliefs about music and music education cannot at all be aligned with the basic tenets of white supremacy and patriarchy. I'm sorry, but that person is lying to themselves. Welcome back to Sound Expertise. I'm your host, Will Robin, and this is the season three finale of a podcast where I talk to my fellow music scholars about their research and why it matters. So whether or not you are in academia, you are probably at this point very aware of the fact that in recent years, an entire political movement has taken shape in this country that focuses on destroying the teaching and studying of history not just at our universities, but in our K-12 classrooms and our public libraries. It has become one of the central animating forces of the Republican Party, and its targets, as I think you all know, include Black history and culture, LGBTQ plus history and culture, women's history and culture, and much more. The undercurrent of all of this is backlash, a visceral but also strategic attempt to roll back the progress that has been made over the last decade. This backlash has affected music scholarship in a number of ways, which we've touched on in this season, but it is most clearly articulated in the case of Philip Ewell, who, if you follow music academia at all, you probably already know a bit about. Dr. Ewell is professor of music theory at Hunter College of the City University of New York, and in recent years has presented on and published some really important work examining the racialized and racist history of music theory as a discipline with a specific focus on the writings of Heinrich Schenker, a foundational figure in American music theory. The response to Ewell has been, I think, unprecedented, beginning with a 2020 issue of the Journal of Schenkerian Studies, edited by the music theorist Timothy Jackson, that presented a series of harsh attacks on Ewell's work, and represented an incredibly unusual and, I think, unethical act of academic behavior. Ewell was not asked to participate in the issue, the submissions were not properly peer-reviewed, and one was even anonymous. As the discipline erupted in protest over this particular journal issue, this very quickly became not just a music theory discussion or even a music discussion, but part of the anti-academic right-wing culture wars. Ewell's work was denigrated on places like Fox News and The Federalist, which typically don't care about music theory at all. I wanted to talk to Dr. Ewell about what this all meant and felt like which I should say he digs into in much further detail in his new book on music theory. Even if you're already familiar with Ewell's work or the specific case, I think you'll learn a lot from this episode. So I wanted to start with kind of just a basic question, which is like, what is life like for you these days in terms of, you know, being like a target of this culture wars backlash that 
is not really something that most music scholars really encounter. Like, are you still getting hate mail? Are you still getting, like, your name popping up on these random right-wing, like, attacks on woke academia and stuff like that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, the way I deal with it is... um, I imagine the way that most people who are such targets deal with it, you know, you take screenshots, you don't want to like click on any links. Um, You know, it's just kind of like good internet hygiene, basically, but you kind of up the security and, you know, screenshot um, and then block and and delete and those types of things. But yeah, I certainly am still a part of that. I got, you know, pulled into this ecosystem of right-wing hate. And once you're there, you know, your name is out there and, and people are gonna gonna um, haters gonna hate, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I always hasten to add that um, if I ever do talk about people who are sending me hate messages, um, you know, for every one of those, I get twenty, if not forty, messages of support and admiration, and it's just really humbling. And so, you know, that's obviously what keeps me going. And the hate actually can be very useful um, if you if you know how to use it. In other words. Um, rather than just, you know, stew on it and 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 uh, and and let it affect you, you kind of collect it like you're playing gin rummy or something. You're like, oh my god, you're going to throw away that queen? Are you sure? All right, whatever. And the next thing you know, you're you know using some of that in the next presentation you make, in the next in the next argument you make. Like, and then this happened, right? Um, so it can be very useful, actually. Some of the the, the nonsense, but generally, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a big boy. I can handle it. Okay, so it sounds like it's not taking a psychological toll. I mean, I, I, I can also imagine just all of the messages, regardless of they're positive or negative. That's a lot of just work to be inundated with as you're doing all of the other things you do as a scholar, which is we we already answer a lot of email, you know. Yep. Yep. No, it is. It is. Um, but, you know, I suppose at, at the beginning, you know, back in 2020, when the hate started, um, it was a little jarring because, you know, I'm like, I'm I'm a music theorist. I'm a Russianist and I published a lot of stuff. And obviously I've never gotten hate like that um, by, you know, publishing something in Russian music theory. And all of a sudden, um, you know, it, it it became right wing hate, uh, part of this kind of culture of hate that we have now in our country. So yeah, uh, you know, for a few months, I talked with lawyers at, at Hunter, and I talked with the FBI once. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, you know, and, and you know, you, you learn how to deal with it, you block here, I I'd shut down the voice message on my office phone. But I mean, who, li- who listens to voice messages anyway? <laughs> I, I don't know the password to my office phone and voicemail. Exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. So I'm just like, well, why do I even have this when you know one out of five messages is like, you're an idiot and you're a racist and all that stuff. So, you know, that was a no brainer. But um, but but yeah, now it's it's actually not a, not that big a psychological toll. I'll be honest. Okay. Well, I want to come back to the reason for all of this. Um but I also want to talk about being a Russian music theorist. Um, so, you know, your first publication from 2002 is on Scriabin's Seventh Piano Sonata. How wow. did you get to Scriabin? I mean, I, did, I only read a little bit of it, but um, <laughs> you, know, you list them <laughs> on your website. Um, how did you get to Scriabin? How did you get to music theory? Like, what brought you into those worlds? Uh, yeah. Well, so a little background. Um, I started playing cello when I was nine. Uh, my dad was very excited about classical music. Um, so I only played in my, you know, school orchestras five days a week. And I just kind of 
I never practiced, right? I took lessons, but I never practiced, didn't like taking lessons, played sports. And by the time I was ready to go to college, I I was a, 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 a I was really into science. My dad was a mathematician. My brother's a physicist. And I was just this annoying math whiz, actually. I've never really mentioned this, but uh, I only mention it now because I didn't go to college to, to study music. I almost didn't take my cello, actually, to Stanford. Stanford University, because I was going to be a physicist or an engineer. I I took all of our high school calculus by my sophomore year, and I took differential equations and linear algebra at my local university as a high school student, which did not make me a popular person, you know, <laughs> getting A's in classes like that. And by the time I made it to Stanford, I was deep into math and science and engineering. Um, and I remember... <laughs> I took this uh, advanced calculus class right when I arrived at Stanford. I was the only freshman in the class. There were upper class uh, people, you know, third, fourth years and master students. And, and this teacher, his name was David Gilbarg. And he was the most boring <laughs> math teacher. He was very elderly then. I'm sure he's not with us anymore. And I was just thinking to myself, oh my God, this is, and, and I actually, I got my first midterm back and it was a C. And this is the, what, um, what is this? strange semi-sphere on the top of my page written in red i've never never gotten a b before but um it was at that point where i'm just like this is not fun and and at the same time i was taking lessons with this great cellist stephen harrison uh i took some music theory classes with leonard ratner and they were fun and people in music at stanford were fun so ultimately i essentially you know, chose the more fun route. And 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 it was about cello at that point, um, got a master's degree in cello. Um, the switch from cello to music theory happened in the 90s. Um, I had met somebody who suggested I should maybe think about the academic side because I was very always interested in academic music. And in 1994, I was accepted. I actually got into four DMA programs for cello and two uh, PhD programs for musicology, actually, not theory. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And it was, that's when there was a fork in the road for me. And, and Yale had given me a really great um, deal, you know, a good package. So I chose that for, for musicology. Leon Plantinga had actually um, recruited me. I don't think Leon, you know, regret or, well, maybe he doesn't regret. Maybe he does. Regret. <laughs> no, I don't think he would hold it against me that I ultimately, I took classes with Alan Fort at Yale and, and he, much like Carl Schachter at, at Queens College, I didn't mention my classes in music theory with Carl Schachter at Queens College. Both he and Alan Fort were just having so much fun in the classroom. And, and that's really kind of got me going with maybe music theory professor-ing is it for me. And so, yeah, after Yale, I got a job, uh, I had two pre-tenure track jobs, one at University of Tennessee, one in North Central College near Chicago. And then in 2009, I, um, I got my job at Hunter College. And that's, yeah. that's how I ended up here. Yeah. And was, in terms of the kind of analytical work you were doing, was Schenker important for that? Or was Schenker just kind of a context that you had been trained in and kind of put aside? I'd say, I'd say both, actually. I mean, I went to Queens College. I took Schenkerian analysis with David Gagné and Carl Schachter, and then at Yale with Robert Morgan and Alan Ford. I mean, these are big names, obviously. Yeah. And um, I... I can say that my own music theoretical thinking is very Schenkerian, actually. Um, you know, people might wince when I say that, but it's true. <laughs> um, but, you know, Schenker really was a person. One, one, one little thing about Schenker that I like to point out is it's not this monolith that people make it out to be. It's not that 
complex and and like i mean people it's it's built up as this massive thing that you have to spend a lifetime doing but you don't uh that's just part of a mythology that that people like to create around people we deify in in what we do um but at any rate shankaran analysis was always always part of it just because i was a music theorist you know cutting my teeth in the in the 1990s a priori meant you were a shankarian person period out of discussion if this was in the United States of America, as it was with me. Uh, in terms of Russia, the reason why I, uh, I'll backtrack a little bit to answer the Russia, Russian equation. Um, I had started studying Russian at Stanford uh, as an undergrad. We needed to take a year of language. And, um, you know, it's a great language, lots of interesting literature, et cetera. And then I started playing lots of Russian music. I played a uh, Shostakovich Sonata with my dear friend Andrew Powell. Shout out to Andrew, who is a music theory prophet at Oberlin now. Um, we played Tchaikovsky Serenade for Strings uh, at Stanford. What a great piece. Uh, we did Scheherazade by Rimsky Korsakov. Eh, not so crazy about that piece, I'll be honest, although I do love the music of Rimsky, just not that piece so much. And I essentially put those two things together Russian language and Russian um, music, and ended up going to study. A cello at first in Russia in the early 90s, which was a fascinating, oh, wow. fascinating thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you're steeped in this analysis, you're doing work on Russian music. How did you begin to think about, okay, this more kind of critical examination of Schenker, this examination of the white racial frame? Like, how did that project start to emerge for you? Yeah. Um, I think uh, it didn't start with Schenker, actually. Um, it started long ago so as a black music theorist you know you are at once very visible and very invisible you're both you're visible because you're black you're invisible because you're black <laughs> and um so i was invited to be on the diversity committee for the society for music theory that's part of the visibility aspect of being a black music theorist right and for three years i was a member and then for three years i was chair this was the mid to to the late 2000s, roughly. And I just kept hearing all of my white colleagues because it's music theory back then. It was all of your colleagues were white, right? And it was more or less, well, well over 90%. You know, people in leadership positions. Yeah. Um, and they all just kept talking about how they wanted, how, how dedicated they were to diversity and inclusivity and fairness and justice. And all of the answers I could see them giving were just, they just rang so hollow. I mean, it it was like, oh man, if only we marketed music theory better, we could in, we could invite more people in and we'd become more popular. We're just not doing a good enough job at selling music theory. And I'm like, maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Um, and I just had a black perspective on it, which was like, actually, there are a lot of problems within the field itself. It's not marketing, it's the field itself that has problems. So I just saw it kind of up close and personal long ago. And after, you know, frankly, after I got tenure, um, which I had to fight two years for because of my blackness, um, that happened in 2016. And then finally, I'm like, well, look, if if not now, when? Right. If not now, when? I have tenure. You can't fire me. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and just say what I think actually is going on here. Schenker is just a really great example of what goes on in music yeah. theory, right? Um, but he's hardly alone, right? Sure. There, there are many instances of racist and sexist structures in what we do. Shankarian analysis is one. It's a big one, 
but it's certainly not the only one. And um, I just felt that, you know, we desperately needed a black perspective on directly on music. I don't mean any disrespect to black music theorists and composers and musicologists who have come before me or, or work alongside me. I, I really don't. But I have never seen uh, somebody within music theory directly challenge music theory. Someone who uh, whose advisors were Alan Fort and Carl Schachter and, um, you know, had, you know, gotten straight A's and all the Shankarian stuff and all this, the set theory stuff. I mean, I'm technically a 20th century guy. That's really where my my um, my strengths lie. Um, and, uh, you know, and. And I just did, thought that the field needed to, to hear this per perspective. So I went ahead. I'm not one to be shy. I'm, I'm not yeah. afraid of, of these things. So that's when the, the it began to churn, I think. Um, when I actually got some words out after tenure was, as I explained in the book early on, was when uh, my dear friend Noriko Manabe um, asked me to, to, to write an introduction for that uh, symposium on Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly because I've written in, uh, on rap before. And that was great. Um, and the five authors uh, were so wonderful to work with. And um, and I actually had spit out this kind of word vomit, 15, 16,000 words of word vomit, which was a ver the first instantiation of music theory's white racial frame, actually. Oh, okay. And they were like, wow, okay. Yeah, it's not quite an introduction. Thinking, you know? <laughs> and they were all very, very gracious and gave me great feedback. And I just pulled it completely and wrote a, a very typical 4,000, 5,000 word introduction to the symposium, which I thought worked really well. And it was a nice uh, symposium that came out in, in Music Theory Online. But the wheels had already gotten in motion. And um, that's when I started working on that long piece, the word vomit. And, and maybe it's still word vomit. I don't know, but it has gotten many views on Music yeah. Theory Online. And that's for sure. Well, so like what were the kinds of both, I guess, experiences and also like academic, uh, you know, perspectives you were developing about this that caused you to have this moment of like word vomit where you had to address not just Schenker, Schenker as an example, but this broader kind of thing? Um, You know, I would probably pin the, the moment on the when I started reading work that was not musicology or music theory. Um, what, I, I, I needed to leave completely what we do because we just are not honest about certain certain things in what we do in musicology, music theory, and, and ethnomusicology for that matter. And, and um, that's a harsh judgment to say we're dishonest about it. Um, I think a lot of times the dishonesty is not intentional. I, I think that sometimes it is, to be quite honest. Um, but I needed to leave that. I remember a book I read early on was James Whitman's uh, Hitler's American Model. I think I mentioned that early on in my book, which just talked about how complicit uh, uh, the US race law was in forming the Nuremberg Laws of September 1935 in Nazi Germany. And that kind of set me on a path. Uh, I mean, I had knew a little bit about it. it it's something that you know we don't wanna advertise just how wildly popular Adolf Hitler was in 1930s America. That's something you're, you're not going to learn. Uh, you're, you're, not only in Florida will you not learn that, you won't even learn that in the other 49 states. Um, 
So uh, once that kind of that got the wheels in motion kind of in a scholarly way, and I just started immersing myself in lots of race scholarship, feminist scholarship, all kinds of things, queer scholarship, and started putting pieces together. And sometimes the arguments were really quite easy, right? When you when you realize how how firmly the country is is rooted in a white supremacy that was rooted in racial segregationism, it became very easy to see why we segregate jazz in our music curricula, right? That's the reason. It's because it was racially segregated and no one has come along and said, it's racially segregated because music education is rooted in white supremacy and we need to stop it. We can teach music majors, jazz music theory, jazz music, and rap and hip hop, and all of these other things in conjunction alongside Bach chorales. It's not going to ruin anything. It's only going to enrich things. Things will get better. But of course, people who are committed racial segregationists, no one's going to admit that, obviously. Uh, but in, in terms of music curricula, there are people who are effectually still musical racial segregationists. Um, they are unnerved by the idea of integrating racially our music curricula. So those are things that I, I've been working on. And, and, um, and um, you know, it kind of just took off from that early non-music scholarship reading yeah. that I was doing. So why and why Schenker as a, a chief example for you, both in terms of his significance in music theory and also what he represented in terms of this issue of the white racial frame? Yeah, well, there I would credit my my friend and colleague Joe Fagan again, outside of music theory, very an icon of American sociology, and um, reading his work on on white racial framing, frankly, and there was, and, and I think it's the epigraph epigraph to the quote to the chapter on Shanker, um, where he literally says, in a whitewashing process, the white racial frame dismisses, denigrates, et cetera, et cetera, blackness. And I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> that is exactly what we have done with Heinrich Schenker. Um, and then then that set me off a path to just say, OK, let's just see how ugly. I know some of the ugly quotes. I don't know them all. Fortunately, um, the people who did Schenker documents online have given us all of the information. I mean, I think almost all of Schenker's writings are now now appear in English. Um, so, you know, you can go in there and just search, search the word Negro, search mm -hmm. the word uh, Japanese, Asian, African, search race and racist, for example. Sometimes the, um, the translations are, are not, um, great from the German. They see that you can see the German there. You can compare for yourselves, but generally they're pretty decent translations and, um, and honest and, and thank you. Thank, I would thank the people who, who did it, um, uh, all that translating because they're being, you know, they, for the most part, pretty honest with these translations. And, um, you know, so that was an easy argument to make actually, uh, the reaction uh, was not something I would quite have predicted. Although I have to say now in retrospect, yes, it was predictable, but you know, at the time it was like, wow, you know, this is, you know, you obviously I've touched a nerve, but, um, but actually, that's that's kind of the way whiteness reacts mm. when mm. blackness challenges it so directly. Yeah, and, I want to I want to tackle the reaction because uh, it's, it's 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 significant, obviously, and 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 yeah. But so like, there's I I could I could imagine a world where let's say one writes 
a musicological-ish article unveiling and, and pointing out these comments, Schenker being clearly making all of these racist comments with regards to his his philosophy on music and kind of leaving it as that. But I'm wondering how you use that to also then say, and then you can kind of keep doing Schenkeri analysis while saying like, oh yeah, it's too bad that he said this stuff, right? How, how do you take the stuff he said and use it to understand or critically reflect on the analytical tools he developed that have then become integrated into the discipline. Yeah, that's actually an easy answer uh, because Schenker told us how to do that. He said, do not forever, never, do not separate my ideas about people Mm -hmm. and ideas about music. To do so would be a flaw in the system. Don't do it. Mm -hmm. So you just have to listen to Heinrich Schenker himself, who very clearly believed in in the unity of the world. He didn't want to separate the man from the music or whatever. He didn't if if Schenker didn't want to separate the man from the music, who are we, Will, to do so? That is wrong. You're not you're not being uh you're not being honest and you're not you're not uh honoring Heiner Schenker and his wishes, right? Yeah. So all I all I did, in fact, was honor uh, Heinrich Schenker's wishes, and mm-hmm. that was enough to garner the reaction that it did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can imagine a world in which this journal did not publish the issue that it's published, and your work was received with some adulation and some you know, critique in the world of music theory and kind of proceeded to be a music theory debate. But instead, this became not a music theory, not 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 a disciplinary specific conversation, right? Like it, right. it became something else in large part because of the backlash. Um, Correct. Correct. So like, can you talk a little bit about the keynote you gave at the Society for Music Theory in 2019 as part of the session and how that leads, what you're arguing there, how it's received in the room, and then how this other thing starts to percolate afterwards that becomes the beginnings of this massive backlash. Yeah. Um, so it was really great to do, to do that um, reframing music theory um, uh, panel with with Ellie and Joe and Yayoi, moderated by Betsy Marvin. It was a lot of fun. We worked very hard on it, really, for almost a whole academic year but before that, certainly six, eight months. And um, yeah, I remember sitting in the front of the business meeting, it, I think it started at four and I was leading off after Betsy made the introductions. And it was a wide room, very, very not too deep, but very wide. And I, I imagine five or 600 seats were in there. And, and you know, 30 minutes, maybe at 3.30, I just, I'm sitting in the front and I look over my shoulder and it was a business meeting like you would expect. And what does that mean? Well, from a racial standpoint, that means that it's 90, 95% white people. Okay. And, you know, from a, a rank perspective, you know, you're talking about associate full professors. So, you know, the crowd is basically over 40 years old, at least, let's say maybe over 50. Well, this is not my core constituency. Mm. <laughs> okay. Mm. <laughs> and I just thought to myself, well, this is going to be fun. Because yeah. you're normally, <laughs> you're giving papers to a slice of music theory specifically typically rather than the entire society and generally they'd probably be a little more sympathetic if they're in the room to the arguments you're making number one that's absolutely true but number two i mean it was the business meeting right so it was a specific it was the leadership of of the society for music theory 
And that's a specific slice. I, I don't want to sound like I'm denigrating them, but it is for sure very white and, and senior in rank, at least, let, let's say, right? Again, not my core constituency. Um, however, I think maybe just simply because of the title of the panel, Reframing Music Theory, and the title of my talk, Music Theory's White Racial Frame, uh, definitely a lot younger folks, uh, people of color started filing in. And by the time four o'clock came around, you know, I looked around, I'm like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> or, more of my core constituency, or at least, you know, I had no constituency actually at that point, let's be honest. Um, but people I, I would have presumed to, to be more sympathetic to the arguments I, I was making. And that's for sure. I mean, there's, there's no question that's true. Um, so after that, you know, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. We just, you know, we're hanging out and talking about these things. I got a lot of people, uh, congratulating me, you know, really just an enormous number of people afterward in person, but then in, in many follow-up, uh, correspondences, but, you know, there wasn't really a whole lot of angry backlash until the, um, the summer of 2020, which volume, when volume 12, of the journal Shakespearean studies came out and, um, and that's when it became it started to become something beyond music theory and and beyond musicology let's say beyond academic music right that's when uh, different people different news outlets latched latched onto it and then of course uh, 6 8 months later you have a lawsuit filed down in Texas uh, by Timothy Jackson um i don't know anything really about that lawsuit other than what i read in two pieces um somebody sent me the filing which is a public document and and I just noticed that in the first couple of paragraphs, my name was mentioned a lot. Um, and, you know, Philip Yule, obviously, you know, is, is a really bad person. <laughs> I'm trying to use nice language. Um, and I just said, okay, well, I don't need to read this. Um, that may or may not be true. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that, but I'm certainly not going to read this document because that's just silly. It's nonsensical. And uh, and that's the way I've treated all of that. Really, um, I tend not to engage with the nonsense, which has proven to be very effective. Um, not only do I not engage, but with, uh, you know, directly, sometimes I can use the data that I call to my benefit uh, in, in other presentations or in, in just interactions with people. So it's actually been very useful in, in a certain sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's worth, you know, especially for the listener, just making clear, like the strangeness of a journal publishing a special issue requesting submissions responding not to a published article but a talk and not like a not like a 60 minute talk but a talk as part of a panel uh that it's it's so th what they were doing and then this very tight timeline the fact that there wasn't a traditional peer review the fact that people were allowed to submit things anonymously and you know some of the submissions in the journal as you talk about in in your book were you know genuine reflections and then most of them are like trolling basically and just like these right. ridiculous attacks on you and you know really clearly emotional responses to i don't know these people sitting in this room maybe and feeling very uncomfortable or maybe these people like leaving and then exchanging all these snide emails and deciding they have to do something about it but like it's not none of this was normal academic behavior um and mm. i'm wondering like how what do you make of that what do you make of the how, how do you conceptualize like the motivations behind people doing essentially like bad behavior in academia just as, as a starting point beyond what they're even saying which is so you know offensive and, and obscene in some some regard yeah yeah 
You know, I listened to uh, one of my favorite pods is If Books Could Kill um, with Michael Hobbs and uh, Peter Shamshiri. And they recently did Jonah Bolt. So it's a, it's a pod for the listener. It's a podcast that debunks the airport books, you know, the, the books you buy in the airport because you forgot to charge your iPad, basically. And so they've done Freakonomics and um, and the, the World is Flat and, and those types of books. Um and they just did Jonah Goldberg's liberal fascism. And you can, you know, I, I hope you haven't read the book. <laughs> if you have, you know what it is. But, you know, it's basically liberals are fascists. Okay, fine. Um, but in that pod, this is to, in answer to your question, Will. Um, the, the, <laughs> I think it was Peter Shamshiri who was like, um, when you, if you say blacks, black people do this, that's step number one on the way to racism. And then, and then Michael Hobbs jumps in and says, yeah, step 25 is concentration camps. <laughs> so, so it's, it's incredible because when you, when you start to look at the, the actual volume 12, the core, the 10 core authors, not the five who actually were good faith uh, submissions who actually were responding to a call for papers, right. As I explained in the book, when you look at the 10 core authors, you realize that what they're saying is it's not goodness. They're not responding to my, to my scholarship. They're saying, Black people do this, right? In other words, it's step number one of, of the If Books Could Kill podcast. Black people do X. Black people do Y. And then occasionally there's this kind of like, oh, I guess we can mention uh, something that Phil said. Like, I think it was David Beach who was saying something like, I, I suppose I suppose it's true that maybe we've whitewashed some of Schenker's bad language, but both sides is and what about is and blah, blah, blah. And I think Timothy Jackson said something like, I suppose Ewell is cor probably correct when he says we shouldn't be, sh that Schenker would object to separating his racism from his musicianship, right? And, and that's it. That's the, like the depth of their of their engagement with my arguments, right? And then they and then they the ten core authors are like, but black people do this, and that just basically shows you something that's so important. Again, as I say in this that that chapter on volume twelve, this is the greatest gift we could have ever been given, because it just lays so bare the problems, the racism, the sexism, the ugliness. And as I've often said, the anti-blackness of what we do. It would have been an entirely different response if I were one, a white person. But number two, it could have still been very ugly. Don't get me wrong. But it would have been white on white violence, white on white aggression. And let's be clear, when we have these uh, inflection points in our, in our country's history, which we're having right now and, and in the 60s and in Reconstruction era, and you keep going back and there are big ones, right? Every one of those, since whiteness became the majority um, operating structure in the country, which was before the founding of our country, right, in 1776, and certainly once the Constitution was written in 1787, every one of those inflection points has, in fact, been white-on-white -white aggression, right? So today, we're talking about like tens of millions of Americans who are just in full-blown denialism about like everything that has to do with race. I mean, I, I don't even think they think the slavery ever happened sometimes. Okay, then there are other people who are fighting against it. It's it, it's Joe Biden, right? Who's the president who's leading the charge, who occasionally actually uses the term white supremacy. God bless him for that, right? The first president who's ever said those words at an inauguration when he was inaugurated. Um, so it's really important to kind of understand, well, the stakes, obviously, but but the actors, right? So in this sense, my role was actually pretty functional, right? I just came along and I happened to be black. 
And I made these arguments. Other people have made many of the arguments, maybe not quite strung them together in the same way that I did by tying in a lot of sociology and race scholarship. No. I think that's very important. And it's even, of- yeah, it's so obvious because there were other people on your panel, but they chose you. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, yeah. not that everyone in the panel was talking about the same thing, but it, it obviously makes clear how clearly you are being singled out. They they chose me and they chose nine minutes of the 22 minutes I spoke. In other words, the other, what, 13 minutes, I I just, they weren't about Heinrich at all. And they chose nine minutes, which was, I say, probably about 900 or 1,000 words. And yeah, and that was it. They just, they went to town. But in so doing, they gave us this great opportunity to move forward and actually help music education in a way, well, certainly that I've never seen in my career. So for that, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thankful. It's unfortunate that it, it needs to take, uh, that it has to take some such ugliness, but hey, without the ugliness, you don't move forward, right? That's what it takes in our country to have things move forward. I recently heard Ta-Nehisi Coates um, on a, a interview or a pod somewhere, this is a few months back, and the interviewer was like, what do you make of all the anger and the hate and the aggression and the, the, the mass shootings and all this of, uh, surrounding race and the anti-wokeness and all that? And he's like, it actually makes me really excited. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and he's like, it makes me really excited because this is how I know things are progressing. And he's dead on. He's spot on. You know, yes, this is how we know things are changing when the people with power are absolutely losing their shit, Right. That's how we know. And I'm like, that's a beautiful way yeah. to, th- to frame it, actually. Uh, that's that I like to think about it that way myself, too. Yeah. I mean, what were you surprised? I imagine you must have been surprised when this begins to drift into mainstream conservative media and mainstream media. Like, what was how did you feel about becoming suddenly one of these names that's popping up in these, you know, in whatever the, the Fox News and stuff like that? Yeah. Well, Joe Fagan told me that it was that it was P.T. Barnum who said, I don't care if people trash me uh, in, in the media, just so long as they spell my name right. <laughs> <laughs> so to be honest, Will, um, it's really redounded to my benefit. I mean, it's made me a hell of a lot of money. I mean, John McWhorter's piece in The New York Times, that quadrupled my book sales, uh, probably more. So thank you for the money. Um, John, but mo- but more important, uh, of course, than money. This is not about just money. This is about what music and music education. They actually have helped me make my arguments. So, if the question is, you know, what do I make of of the the, the reaction and 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 the hate and the anger? Yeah, the, earlier you asked me about a psychological toll. Well, sure. I mean, it's not nice to open up your e- inbox and and see hate, but but more important, it actually just helps me. I, I I I think I would have a plea almost for all of the the ten core authors of Volume Twelve and John McWhorter and and my friends at uh, the Manhattan Institute or or Quillette or, or or Fox News. I would say to them, this is my plea: please keep doing exactly what you're doing because you are only helping me. Do not change a thing. You're helping me make my arguments. I, I don't I don't know that they quite understand that. I mean, within the ecosphere of like a Fox News, well, no, I mean, because people don't understand music, really, and music education. But like a a pseudo musicologist like John McWhorter, who probably couldn't, you know, understand the difference between, I don't know, Beethoven and Leonard Skinner or something. 
he actually is trying to sound like he knows music and he doesn't. And then the people who actually understand music, because it's got musicology in the title. I mean, musicologists are going to read that article and they're going to be like, oh my God, this guy just doesn't understand anything. Now I really have to revisit that Phil Ewell. I didn't want to read that thing, but I've, I've got to see now. And, and then they do it. They're like, oh, okay. He's not nearly as wackadoodle as, as they say he is. And again, it just helps to strengthen my argument. So, you know, thanks for that. It's I, I can handle it. It's actually, like I said, it has redounded to my benefit. I don't want to make it sound like, oh, I'm making lots of money. It's true. I have actually made a lot of money. That's, that's true. Um, but that's not the point. It yeah. really is not the point. I actually can help move the needle. I can help move the paradigm. Hmm. Of what we do in our in music education for the betterment of music education in the United States of America, and I think that's a very worthy goal. Yeah, um, I was struck. I remember this notable at the time, and and then reading about it in your book that you know there was this New York Times article where it was, you know, kind of like the the Ewell versus Schenker versus Jackson kind of like let's let a, a, academic freedom freedom of speech all this kind of like buzzwords of how the mainstream media unfortunately covers a yeah. lot of cancel it. culture don't forget cancel about culture cancel, cancel. that's course, a big cancel one culture um and you you declined to be interviewed um which was striking to me that the journalist actually reached out to me at one point when he was working on it for like some in for to get a sense of who you were and i was like look his bio is on his website the more important thing is like you need to understand this was a hit job and like it was clear to me based on the 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 way that this guy wrote to me that he was not thinking of it as a hit job on you, the whole thank you thing, that he was thinking of it as like some, you know, interesting cancel culture battle in which Jackson was the victim rather than you per se. Of course, of course, um, yeah. But, I, you know, why why not participate? I, I mean, you talk about it in the book. You say, like, you're not wanting to participate in your own dehumanization, which I found very powerful. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I like to say that my, bl my black radar, my bladar was working just fine that day. Um, uh, another thing I'll tell your listeners is that uh, in January, I think of 2021, through an intermediary, Michael Powell, he was the journalist who wrote that, uh, that piece, reached out to me uh, for a photo shoot to come to include in this piece that I had declined to, to be interviewed for. So in a last ditch effort to engage me in my own dehumanization, Michael Powell appealed to my vanity. And I have to say, <laughs> that's really sick. That's very sick. I obviously declined that as well. I have a little bit of vanity. I thought for a yeah. fleeting second, my picture could be in the New York Times. You could get new oh. headshots. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> like, oh, Phil, come on, man. <laughs> no, I respectfully decline. Um, you know, it's... Uh, it's actually something I've thought about a lot, Will, I'll be honest, because, you know, you have to be able to 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 suss out when, in fact, a person is not approaching you in good faith. And it was clear to me that Michael Powell was not approaching in good faith. He really wanted to prop up Timothy Jackson. He wanted to make this a battle between me and Timothy Jackson. Lots of people have. That would really, as I write in the book, that would really help Timothy Jackson and Shankarian Studies, et cetera. And I have I say unequivocally in the book, and I'll I'll just repeat it here. There's never been a dispute or a debate between me and Timothy Jackson. Never heard from him. Never met him. I really know virtually nothing about the person, other than this the 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 response which I did read uh, ultimately, and the simple fact that he was behind the publication of Volume Twelve. Aside from that, really almost nothing I don't know about this person. But um, 
So you have to understand, one has to understand when that's at play here. And it's just so easy in our country to uh, to be to be uh, the subject, to be uh, abused, frankly, by whiteness and maleness if you are not a white man yourself. And you can be so abused even if you are a white man. That's for sure. Now, you're much more susceptible to being abused if you're not. And this was just a case where it was so clear. And I mean, it, it uh, once again, it redounded to my benefit because I was able to say very clearly that I could I could sense the anti-blackness, the dehumanization, the both sides. I call it both sides-ism. That's exactly what was going on. But, but why can't he defend himself? I'm like, well, he should defend himself if he's being attacked. No one's attacking Timothy Jackson. How could you say that? You're attacking Timothy. Well, I'm not. I never, literally never mentioned his name once in anything in you're telling me that I attacked Timothy Jackson. That doesn't make any sense. I wrote 18,000 words and never mentioned his name. How are you telling me that I attacked Timothy Jackson? That's so, so very silly. I, I once on a pod described this as a music academic version of stand your ground legislation, right? It's that part of whiteness, which overemphasizes whiteness's ability to maintain power and control over a situation. In Stand Your Ground legislation, it basically gives whiteness the upper hand to shoot and kill non-whiteness as they see fit, as whiteness sees fit. It's never happened to my mind in, in a music theory publication, but this was kind of a stand your ground response to blackness challenging whiteness within music theory. And, but you know, here's the deal. This isn't being legislated or or or, or uh, it's not in a court of law in Florida and no guns were discharged, folks. So there you have it. Uh, it just doesn't work. It just it really didn't work for them. And many people have tried to draw me into these bad faith uh, debates, not just Michael Powell. Many people have. And um, I have been very steadfast and I think pretty successful at uh, understanding when uh, and where and how uh, the debate is good, like it is on your podcast, obviously, or bad as it would have been with Michael Powell and everything, excuse me, everything in between. It, it, it can be very difficult, but I have had a lot of experience at this point. Yeah, yeah. You know, the book uh, gets into all of this. It also, you know, I think for me is is particularly compelling when you're using these specific case studies to make a broader case for reform within the discipline of music theory and perhaps you know music academia or classical music or whatever more broadly um so like you know maybe to wrap up with a broader like more utopian question like if you were made the director of whatever a school of music, your own school, not just of music theory within the school, but the entire curriculum, like, and let's say the faculty is on board with everything you're going to do, and they're going to, you know, they're not going to bow down to you, but they're going to, like, check off every, you know, love all, all your decisions. Like, wh what is your, what would you change? What would you keep the same? What are the kinds of things that you think would be most effective, both in, in terms of, you know, the culture and the curriculum? And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, so in, if it's kind of a hypothetical situation, um, you know, I, I do have some hope and optimism for the way things are moving in music education. I, I like to say I'm a, a bottle of hand sanitizer half full kind of guy. <laughs> um, 
But if if it were left up to me, it's it's a very hard hypothetical because I just know so much about the will of the people who mm. who have power in our yeah. music institutions. You can't imagine the utopian situation. Yeah. yeah, it's so hard to imagine the utopian situation. Let let me give it a step. So uh, to finish that point, it's so hard to imagine the utopian situation because of the people who have power, who have tenure in music institutions and in, in departments and schools of music in our country. It need be said that there are many people, they're almost all self proclaimed progressives, virtually no Trump supporters, right, in our country who are, you know, music uh, administrators. Um, and, you know, many of them are very sympathetic to diversity and inclusive, inclusivity and, and even anti-racism. But when it comes, when push comes to shove, they still do not believe, they still believe that the quote unquote great masters are better composers, were better composers and deserve more attention than Julia Perry or Margaret Bonds or, or William Grant Still, et cetera, et cetera. They just do. And they can't let go of that belief. And to those people, if, before I answer the hypothetical, let me just make another plea. And because we know these are our friends and colleagues um, in, in academic music in our country, again, with tenure, with power. I would ask them tonight as you know they're brushing their teeth to ask themselves a question. And that question would be, to what extent do my beliefs about music and music education, to what extent have those beliefs aligned with the basic tenets of white supremacy and the basic tenets of patriarchy? Now, if that person answering the question is a brush of the teeth, say, to no extent at all, my beliefs about music and music education cannot at all be aligned with the basic tenets of white supremacy and patriarchy. I'm sorry, but that person is lying to themselves. I'll just say it bluntly, they're lying. And that's not cool, right? They need to stop. They need to be honest with themselves. It wasn't easy for me uh, brushing my teeth many years ago <laughs> and saying, holy shit, this easily can be tied to white supremacy. My own belief about X, my own belief about Y can easily be tied to patriarchy. And here I am acting all cool like that doesn't affect me at all. So I would I would really make a very a very honest plea to my colleagues and friends because that's how that change can actually happen. It doesn't happen with people without power. It happens with the people with power, people with tenure like yeah. you and me yeah. and our colleagues and friends across the country. Now, to get to the hypothetical. Well, I was just saying, I was, you know, I have an electric toothbrush and it takes two minutes, like there's a two minute <laughs> timer. And this is actually a great, and I have tenure. So this is a great question for me to make sure I do the full two minutes with brushing tonight. Full so gonna, two minutes. I'm going to try it out. And I'm pretty sure the answer is going to be yes. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah. It has to be. It, it has to be. We're human beings. We're, I mean, it's just silly to sit there and think that it's not. So once you realize that you your belief that, sh that uh, I don't know, Schumann's Dichte Liebe deserves more attention than a, than a song cycle, cycle by Margaret Bonds, has zero to do with whiteness and maleness. Well, that's just silly. You shouldn't, you should say, you know what? It does have something. I have to be honest. It, it my belief that Schubert deserves more attention than uh, a song cycle by, uh, well, I'm just drawing another blank. I'm saying Margaret Bonds all the time. Um, but, you know, obviously there have been many of black sure. composers and other non-white composers who've written beautiful song cycles in our country. Um, and it absolutely does. So please be honest and just acknowledge that and then fight it. Then don't, you know, get, get a stiff back. One thing that I'm very, very, that animates me is watching uh, friends and colleagues be cowed 
into inaction and into a corner because some big mean person is going to have file a lawsuit against me or somebody in the administration of the president said they talked to a council person and blah, blah. You just come on, give me a break. You have tenure, just stop it. So that that does get me animated I have because I see it all the time. I'm going to get to this bloody hypothetical hell or high water, Will, <laughs> because I don't think I've ever tried to answer that question, to be honest. Um, you know, were I the director of a department or, or, or school of music and, and I could just kind of get people to do what I want? Well, obviously, I wouldn't be saying that everything comes through the piano, right? That's just silly. That's that's straight out of out of the white male playbook. That is a racist and sexist structure, piano proficiency requirements. I uh, would would obviously be thinking about uh, bringing in lots of different people who represent lots of different musical traditions and and production me mechanisms. I would be thinking a lot more about the public dissemination of what we do, like public musicology, which you're a uh, a big proponent of, and and I public music theory. I remember in my website a few years back, I I, I wrote down, I'm a public music theorist, and my work has been in like you know New York Times, BBC, New Yorker, and I looked at those three words, public music theorist, on my website as I put that in there, and I'm like, what the hell is that? <laughs> it's just you know because we in music theory are always about 10, 15 years behind y'all yeah, in, yeah, yeah, yeah. in, uh, in music. Well, you put out your Oxford Handbook first of public music theory. We don't, I think. Yeah, the, that's the true. That's true. Yeah, that history. was there. But so you know, there there clearly would be uh, a new ways of understanding how we conceive of music. A music theory curriculum would dispense with you know part writing and figure bass and, and all of these extremely antiquated things. Again, based on piano and only piano, right? Um, and bring in, you know, it, it, you're obviously going to still present music by Bach because it's some really interesting music, right? And there's a person playing the cello over there and they should, if they want to play the Bach six suites, they should absolutely have a place and a space to, to do so. Um, but, you know, you're going to rethink uh, your, your, your ensembles, right? And you, instead of funneling all of your money into the, 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 the symphony and the opera, you're going to think about having different groups playing different types of music. And obviously, yes, the people, the rep, the, the, uh, the personnel you're bringing in are going to change pretty drastically. You know, this is unnerving to hear uh, for people who want to effectually defend the status quo. Again, we in music don't have a lot. We have, you know, like no Trump supporters. People basically say they're progressive. And when I say many times they want to defend the status quo, people might take issue with that. No, I don't want to defend the status quo, Phil. But it really comes down to like, I'm just going to program Florence Price and, and there we go. We're good to go. Right. And, um, you know, like one of your guests, Dylan Robinson, he calls this uh, additive inclusion. I call it an additive activity. Um, and yeah, that's, you know, yeah, sure. It's absolutely a good idea to, uh, to, to, to uh, platform and perform some Florence Price because she was a fabulous composer, but that is not, that doesn't get down to why are we still forcing all of our music students to, to have basic piano proficiency? Why? Why is that? I know why. Why are we forcing our graduate students to learn German language? Well, that's already basically gone. I'll take a little bit of credit for that because I have hit that very hard over the last few years. It's, it's low-hanging fruit, right? Everyone knows that that's just silly. And by saying, okay, you can study any language, that's just a silly thing. That's even worse because you basically are just trying to double down on French and German. Uh, by saying that you can study, I don't know, Hausa or 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 or, or uh, Tagalog, for example, Tagalog, I think, right, the Filipino language. Um, so uh, yeah, it's a very difficult question because it's so far 
fetched that that we could actually begin to have uh, these things. But you know, it's it's a it's a good thought experiment. So so thanks for the question. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. I'm very, I am heartened by the fact that you see all of this, just mind like insanity as as productive in a way, and and hopefully leading us to a you know maybe a better place. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, let me say thanks too, Will. I've been a big fan of your pod for. Uh for a good long time. I've been waiting for my bite at the Will Robin Apple and it came today. And yeah, I do like to think that um, there is a brighter future for music. I, I really, cause I just see, I've given lots of talks on Zoom and in person and and I can see that there's a lot of things happening right now that, that does make music and music education pretty exciting right now. So thanks a lot, yeah. this was fun. Thank you. So thank you to Philip Ewell for that fantastic conversation, which is a really great way to send off season three of the podcast. You can read more about his work and his new book over on our website, soundexpertise.org. As always, our inbox is open. If you have questions or thoughts about the show, email us at soundexpertise00 at gmail or tag me on Twitter or Insta at seatedovation. I'd love to know your thoughts on this season as a whole and what you'd like to see in season four. And I'll be honest, I have absolutely no idea when that's going to happen, but it's not going to be anytime soon. Though I do have some plans for bonus episodes in the coming months. A bunch of people helped make this season possible, and I'm grateful to all of them. Most of all, D. Edward Davis for his incredible production on all of our episodes. You can check out his music on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. Many thanks to Andrew Delantonio for transcribing our episodes to make them more accessible, and to Brian and Michael at the National Foreign Language Center at UMD, where we recorded many of our episodes this season, and also to my boss, Greg Miller, director of the University of Maryland School of Music, for providing funding for studio time. And thanks most of all to my wife, Emily, and to my kids, Ira and Goldie, who thankfully took great naps on the days I was recording in our basement. And a big final thanks to all of you listeners. It's been amazing to see our audience grow each season and to hear from folks around the world who are tuning in. Please keep spreading the word about sound expertise, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and see you next season.